Hello, welcome to the Eureka Nerd Podcast. I'm Will, Digital Lumberjack. And I am Leah, Yarn Witch. We're going through some of the latest and greatest releases from the Eureka Alert press releases. Greatest meaning ones that caught our eye for I mean, various reasons, not just quality. Mm, there's quality and then there's headlines such as Bagpipe Lung, which we'll be hearing more about later. But first, let's open with the delightful headline of Well-Wrapped Feces Allow Lobsters to Eat Jellyfish Stingers Without Injury. So, we already know lobsters are pretty weird. I mean, long crabs. Yeah, you compare them to most of the animals that we're used to interacting with on a daily basis, and they are bizarre. They start their lives as larvae floating about in the sea, attaching to the tops of jellyfish and eating them alive. Like a cruel ocean rodeo. So they eat jellyfish and jellyfish sting. Oh boy, do they. some scientists wanted to have a look at how lobsters get away with it without ending up all swollen and itchy on the inside. This research has been done by a group at Hiroshima University, led by... Dr. Kaori Wakabayashi. The reason they're looking into this is to figure out how to farm lobsters. Well, Japan has a rich, rich history of seafood uh, as part of their diet, and it's a core part of many diets around the world. Just so happens that sea farming off Japan is very profitable right now. But you want to maximize those profits, and what better way to feed a growing lobster population than with lots and lots of tasty tasty jellyfish and a growing human population with lots and lots of tasty farmed lobster you know i've never had lobster no or me we're not that posh i I don't eat fish at all so that's sort of they're fussy things and to pull a direct quote here from dr wakabayashi we have lobsters and jellyfish aren't common in research labs so we have to find ways to adapt other tools we have a very do-it-yourself mentality which to me lends kind of Ikea aspect to the whole thing of insert jellyfish A into lobster B. I was thinking more they've uh, duct taped together a bunch of apparatus to create environments suitable for growing their experimental animals. As long as they're not duct taping lobsters and jellyfish together. That would be some crazy Frankenstein shit. The ultimate battle. So these scientists are interested in finding out how lobsters can eat jellyfish without hurting themselves. The jellyfish they're particularly looking at are Japanese sea, me- sea nettles, or Chrysaora pacifica. They've got extendable syringe-type stinging cells which inject venom into their prey. About two-thirds of a lobster's intestine is coated with the same plating as they have on the outsides, so they, they actually have chitin-lined guts. If anyone here remembers that one level from Gears of War 2 where you're crawling inside the giant earthworm, then it might start to all come back to you. Probably less uh, digesting of Fords and Chryslers, or whatever they had on, you know, fake Planet 101 for Gears of War, but it's armour-plated on the inside. Only two-thirds of it. The middle third of it is left exposed like anyone else's intestines. Anyone else's intestines who can excrete a specially adapted mucus to swarm and swell around the actual sting parts, which then proceed nicely out of your lobster rectum. That's the bit that makes it possible for them to have this unarmoured section, is that all of the food, as it's passing through them, gets wrapped in this peritrophic membrane, which allows them to extract nutrients whilst also keeping them protected from those nasty stings. Which is better than just having to pee on them, I suppose. I'm sorry, but no one can escape that one Friends episode. No one. 
So there we have it from the Hiroshima University. It turns out that if you do ever want to eat jellyfish, I don't know why you would, because they're an evil bag, 97% water, and just seem to exist, fueled by hate for all other things. Then I mean, they don't have brains. They can't experience hate. They just sort of float around waiting to hurt you. If things without brains couldn't process hate, then newspaper readership in England would be very different. The actual conclusion of this research is lobsters are weird. Actually, no, that's not that's not the actual conclusion of this research at all. My conclusion from this research is lobsters are weird. Speaking of entrails, our next story takes us to Scotland, where no part of the sheep goes unused. Doctors in the journal Thorax have identified a potential hazard for wind instrument players, which they've nicknamed bagpipe lung. I feel like bagpipes probably are the ideal breeding ground for this kind of problem. It's, you know, it's a big leather bag. It's very moist in there. It's It's got a lot of... Crevices? Cranks? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a perfect space to grow nasty, mildewy, mouldy things, which apparently you can then inhale and develop all kinds of nasty. all kinds of uh, inflammatory lung conditions. I'm going to be quoting from the article here, in which the doctors describe the case of a 61-year-old man who, in 2014, had a dry cough, progressive breathlessness, and despite treatment with immunosuppressant drugs for seven years, his condition worsened to the point that he couldn't walk for more than 20 metres, was finding it hard to breathe, prompting admission to hospital, which, I mean, I'd have gone there earlier, but you know how men are. He had been diagnosed with hypersensitivity pneumonitis in 2009, although the cause had not been identified, and again, quoting directly, he was not a pigeon fancier, nor did his house harbour mould or signs of water damage. Now, this is noted particularly because uh, a lot of these conditions are associated with keeping pigeons, because they are grimy, grimy birds. They're like outer bagpipes. Inside out. Feathery, ah. cooing bagpipes. The overlap between cooing and bagpipe noise is not as far as you'd think. But uh, here we have that he played the bagpipes daily didn't take them with him on a three-month trip to Australia, during which time his symptoms rapidly improved. So just going and being in uh, the oven of the world really dries out your innards. I mean, also not inhaling repeated doses of toxic mould really does help your condition. Who ever thought that you could go to Australia for safety? Not anyone who's frightened of spiders. Uh, He did eventually die, which is unfortunate for him, but possibly fortunate for many other wind instrument players who are now warned that they do need to clean out their instruments or risk inhaling mould. But yes, if you're a wind instrument player, particularly of bagpipes, watch out. General caution for you. Yep, just be careful. Careful now. But for those of you who weren't members of wind band in school and as such were likely outside playing sport, then you might be pleased to know that in research from London Metropolitan University, it has been found that boys, us boys, are, after all, more accurate at spotting offside plays in football. Although it's apparently not because they understand it better, but because they have more real-world experience of it. Although I want to point out that this study winds me up. It's, it's not good. As a study from the International Journal of Developmental Science seems to indicate that people who do a certain behaviour and watch for certain activities with regularity, participating in or watching games, for example football, become more keenly aware of the rules and behaviours associated with that game than girls who don't. 
Except the way they tested this was getting a normal class of uh, seven to nine-year-olds, teaching them the offside rule, made sure that they could demonstrate their understanding by drawing examples of an offside position, uh, which showed boys and girls had a similar theoretical understanding of the rule, and then using a Sabutio set to see if they could spot it. Now, they are not comparing like for like. They have compared boys who do often play football with girls who don't often play football. They have not compared boys and girls who don't often play football to boys and girls who do often play football. There is no control group. They even say in the article about this... What would be really interesting to compare would be a group of boys who don't play football and prefer libraries and reading with a group of football club level playing girls to see if the same phenomenon occurs in the reverse way. So again, they're not comparing like for like, but also they've just admitted that they haven't actually finished their study. It's, I mean, it just... Uh, I think this is a, a thing which a lot of science reporting doesn't take into account. They will deliver a story like this as if it's absolutely groundbreaking, complete fact, when the research isn't finished, when the methodology is completely flawed, they're not comparing like to like. It's not good enough. It's just not good enough. Well, if it's any consolation, this does follow on from another study, which we'll link to as we're doing the write-up for this, in which scientists were found to be performing less well than athletes in a test of intelligence by a similar sports-based study, which is to say that athletes and academics were sat down in front of a screen and told to track balls as they were moving across the screen. So people whose professional occupation is watching balls, expecting where they're going to go, and a certain set of behaviours around that, compared to people who don't do that for most of the day, practice made them better. But I'd like to just give the full title of this offside study, which is on being in the wrong place. The role of children's conceptual understanding and ball game experience when judging a football player's offside position by Christian Langkutner and Georgia Bosco. And honestly, if this shows anything, it's that the suspicion for many psychological studies, which having done a psychology A-level I'm aware of, is it's proven, you know, psychology often tries to pretend it's a science and it could be, but their research methodologies are so often so deeply flawed. Especially when they are often quite literally moving the goalposts here. So, moving on to our next piece of news, and this again is gender-based. Oh boy. Oh person, pardon me. The headline on this one is US female phys- physicians reimburse significantly less than male colleagues. The gender pay gap is something that is often discussed. It's something that's often studied. Uh, this study has taken a slightly different approach. The frequent criticisms of researchers on the gender pay gap are that they're not adjusting for working hours, they're not adjusting for years of experience, they're not adjusting for what someone actually produces in a workday. This one does. And it still finds a significant gap in pay between male and female specialist doctors in the US. Yeah, this study from the uh, Postgraduate Medical Journal is not just looking at general practitioners, but they found that nephrology in particular had a large wage gap of uh, almost $17,000 between male and female physicians, which is only slightly more than the slightly over 15000 for rheumatology, 
and almost 12,000 for pulmonary medicine. It turns out that in critical care, disparity is the least, with only a $4,360.05 difference between male and female counterparts. But this is across 13 medical specialties in 2012, uh, reimbursement claims received by male and female physicians. All of them, this disparity was showed to a different, you know, to different extents, but there was always a disparity and it was always the women who were earning less. And they follow up with a second article published in the same journal showing that surgery remains an unpopular career choice for female junior doctors and medical students in the UK. I wonder why. The answer is because of work-life balance issues, few surgical role models and perceived sexual discrimination. I say perceived. Yes, I mean you can't necessarily provide evidence for the fact that your male colleagues make you feel unwelcome. Getting £14,000 less per year would certainly start. The fact that it's a phenomenon reported by women across every STEM field is... Even if it's only anecdotal, I think we should probably be paying attention to that. The important thing about this study is not necessarily that it shows a gender pay gap, but that it shows that the excuses and reasons people often cite for a gender pay gap, like a woman in a career gets her her career started, gets set up, gets married, takes time off to have kids, for example, works shorter hours to work around her children, and therefore has fewer years of experience in the job, works fewer hours in the job, and that's why they get paid less. This study is adjusting for that, and the disparity still exists. It doesn't necessarily show why the disparity exists, but it provides some evidence for why it doesn't. Well, to our vast and expansive male surgical audience out there listening to this, our first ever podcast, then I'm sure you're glad to know that being the primary breadwinner is bad for men's psychological well-being and health, according to the American Sociological Association. And the title of this study, of Relative Income, Psychological Well-Being and Health, is breadwinning hazardous or protective? Well, if you pose a question, you should probably have an answer. And the answer is bad. This is interesting because uh, other studies have investigated differences in earnings within couples and have found that men who earn less than their female partners, obviously this is all looking at straight people because they tend to filter out people who aren't because they muddy the results or something. There's a lot of straight people. There are a lot of straight people. But yes, within relationships between straight people... Previous research has shown that men who earn significantly less than their female partners have an awful lot of hang-ups related to that. So it's interesting that this shows kind of the opposite, or kind of that it's just as bad at the opposite end of the scale, because it's only looking at earnings from where men are the primary breadwinner to where they have an equal income. Quoting Dr. Kristen Munch, the author... Men who make a lot more money than their partners may approach breadwinning with a sense of obligation and worry about maintaining breadwinner status. Women, on the other hand, may approach breadwinning as an opportunity or choice. Breadwinning women may feel a sense of pride without worrying about what others will say if they can't or don't maintain it. Now, again, they haven't actually provided the data about the uh, psychological effects on women of being the primary breadwinner in this article. We can attribute this to just generally the stress of being the person who's responsible for keeping a roof over your head and putting food on the table. Or if the converse effect is seen in women and actually being the primary breadwinner is better for a woman's mental health and psychological well-being, then 
we can definitely say that the struggle to be seen as the most manly is really not doing you all any good. But yeah, this study, uh, it doesn't show whether there is the same effect or the opposite effect on women. It doesn't show the effects. Basically, what I want from this study is a nice graph showing me in just a just a line that goes from man being primary breadwinner to woman being primary breadwinner and just tracks men's mood and well-being along that axis. That's what I want to see. If men's mood and well-being could be accurately predicted, then, oh, the world would be a very different place. I'm not asking for predictions. I'm just asking for the numbers they've produced rather than, you know, just half of that graph. Well, if all of this hard gender theory is starting to get to you, then maybe our next piece will help bring you back down to ground with a little bit of, you know, sky gazing. Might head out on a nice clear summer day as we're not having in Bristol at the moment, but you might go out and look up the clouds and go looking for shapes, see what kind of things you can spy. We've got lots of balloons floating around here, but you know what we don't have? Chemtrails. You know who's telling us that we don't have chemtrails? Science. Mm-hmm. Apparently they don't exist, which most people, I think, probably would not even think about this on a day-to-day basis. They're not walking around going, are chemtrails real? Well, what this does is it appeals to two very separate ends of the chemtrail conspiracy spectrum, which is to say people who'd never even thought of chemtrails before are suddenly looking at this and going, okay, that's great. Why did you have to tell us that chemtrails aren't real? Because that's like saying, oh, hey, please come into my house. Don't open the door on the second floor. Never go upstairs. Don't listen to the sounds in the attic. There's nothing. It's fine. And then on the other hand, you have the people who are so deeply invested in the chemtrail conspiracy saying, ah, see, they wouldn't have to tell us there was nothing wrong unless there was something wrong. And somehow it brings everyone together into this nice cluster of fear and distrust of the mysterious shapes in the sky. The research, the aim of the research wasn't to change anyone's mind who already believed in it. It wasn't to reassure anyone who already definitely didn't believe in chemtrails. It was for those... Let's call them floating voters in the middle who are like, I've heard about this chemtrails thing and I don't know what to think. So here are some nice scientists who have filled out a survey. And I'd like to highlight the results here of 76 of the 77 participating scientists said they had not encountered evidence of a secret spraying program. Who's the one? (laughs) The one guy who is like, yeah, I've, I've seen evidence it doesn't tell us what evidence it might be. You I mean, possibly, possibly he just found a crop-spraying aeroplane and was mistaken. Scientists are notoriously bad at reading emails. He's probably just clicking through, thought, click yes to everything, and I might win an iPad. So, you know, in case you were wondering, chemtrails, not real. Honest. You can totally trust us, say the Carnegie Institution of Science. Totally trust us. Everything is fine. Well, talking about things that are a little bit spooky, let's talk about the void of space. I'd like to correct you there. It is, in fact, the terrifying, terrifying void, void of, of space. space. These things are important. So the void of space, obviously, lots of physicists are very interested in it. It's quite big. There's a lot to go around. There's a lot of space to go around. You think about space, right? And you're like, it's a vacuum. There's not a lot in it. There's sort of light passing through it and maybe a bit of radiation, and very occasionally a solar system. But apparently there are 
points in space that are even emptier. I'm going to start reading from the press release, and I might just slip into a little bit of the colour out of space or Pikmin's model, or just see if you can tell. Much of our universe is taken up by vast, hollow regions of empty space, which we call cosmic voids. They are forever expanding as tiny amounts of matter they contain are striving to reach the outer edges, attracted by the gravity of denser regions surrounding them. The large-scale universe therefore resembles a cosmic web, with immense vacuous bubbles surrounded by filaments of matter in which galaxies are distributed. Sometimes, in the throes of a nightmare when unseen powers whirl over the roofs of strange dead cities, toward the grinning chasm of Nis, it is a relief and a delight to shriek wildly and throw oneself voluntarily along the hideous vortex of dream doom into whatever bottomless gulf may yawn. The research's analysis shows how rapidly the voids are expanding. I think the switch back to the article was a little bit jar- more jarring than the switch into Lovecraft. Uh, but yes, cosmic voids, they're a thing that happens. They get bigger because what's in them is attracted to the stuff that's outside of them. The very tiny amounts of matter in a cosmic void are attracted to the slightly less tiny amounts of matter outside of the cosmic void. I mean, space is so weird. Uh, what the hell, space? Gravity is kind of a constant. And even the littlest bit of gravity will eventually work, especially if there's nothing around to get in the way. But seeing as there are some theories that gravity comes from the 11th dimension, which is why it's so weird, this is the reason why we refer to it as the terrifying, terrifying void, void of, of space. space. But yes, the reason these physicists are looking at the cosmic voids is just to investigate some stuff about cosmological models in astrophysics. Just some stuff. Just some stuff, you know. We've got this funding, let's do some stuff. I mean, basically, based on the general theory of relativity, the behaviour that they expect from cosmic voids is the behaviour that they're observing in cosmic voids, which is is reassuring. Hmm. It's reassuring. It's good to know that the cosmic voids aren't behaving in ways we didn't expect. If the cosmic voids start behaving in ways that we didn't expect, then that would make for much more squamous reading. You had to you had just had to go with squamous, didn't you? The dark, sticky voids. Voids. Yeah, I mean it supports the assumption that there is um dark energy, which is interesting because being as it's dark there's no way to detect it except by association with other things. Well, this is a problem with physics as a whole, is that we rely on a universe of which we understand about 11%. If you're not a physicist, you kind of just have to take their word for it, and that alarms me. That's because they're too busy studying voids. Not just any voids. Cosmic voids. The cosmic voids. Cosmic voids. <laughs> You might have noticed we only picked this story because Will really likes terrifying cosmic voids. He's he's really into it, you guys. And now for Pokemon. This is a lovely, lovely headline, which has absolutely, I mean, like, nothing to do with the story it's actually attached to. But it does have something to do with what all those kids are up to these days. The headline is Scientists on the Prowl for the Ultimate Pokemon. Which We're going to link to this and you're going to look at this thing and think, that is not a Pokemon, that is Roadkill. It's got nothing to do with Pokemon. They just went, 
what's a thing the kids are into that might get them to pay attention to our research? I mean, it's quite interesting research. There is a scaly-tailed squirrel called Zencarella, which lives on an island off the west coast of Africa, which no one has ever seen alive. It's a lovely name, Zencarella. It does sound like, I mean, maybe Gen 3, Gen 4, but... It's a squirrel. I mean, it's it's basically a mammal coelacanth. It's a, a living fossil. The only examples of it we have so far are dead. There's been 14 specimens in all, 11 curated in museums around the world. Very elusive. They only move around at night. It's got nothing to do with Pokemon. And quoting the uh, top author Eric Seifert here, We're only just starting to work on basic descriptions of Zancarella's anatomy. It's fun to think there might be other elusive mammalian species out there, deep in the rainforests of Central Africa that'll be new to science, but you know what? I bet there isn't an electric mouse. It's probably not even a camel turtle full of lava. I can guarantee there will be mammal species deep in rainforests that we've not discovered because we're still discovering them every time someone goes to, you know, a new forested caldera in Borneo and sets up some motion trap cameras, they find something new. And it's exciting because finding new mammals is not common. They're usually larger than makes it easy to hide. We're not talking like beetles here. If you do ever want to be a Pokemon hunter, it seems like central and furthest Africa is the place to be if you want to go and discover something new. No promises of you becoming one of the Elite Four or get some kind of fantastic new disease. But they might name it after you. After you're dead. You've contracted the deadliest Pokemon. Elsewise, in slightly bonkers biology news, conservation ecologist Douglas McCauley and UCSB colleagues lay out a set of guidelines for how de-extinction of mammoths can be made more ecologically responsible. So you know how in Jurassic Park they've got this whole thing about you just considered you could do it, you didn't consider if you should, they're now considering if they should. They're looking at what you can responsibly bring back from the dead. As opposed to all those irresponsible resurrections we've been dealing with so far. Well, the, the movies have been dealing with. You're much less likely to come into a major problem, like ecologically or just personally, if you're de-extincting... I've, I've literally just made that word up. If you're de-extincting something that's recently gone extinct, like wolves in Britain or beavers, by comparison to, for example, Tyrannosaurus rex. Like, you know that one scene in uh, Megashark versus Giant Octopus where the Megashark is being thawed out of the ice blocks in the North Pole because of global warming and then it shakes itself loose, dives under the ocean, and then you get the huge fights over San Francisco and it's like it's leaping over the Golden Gate Bridge and stuff. Oh, is that how that happens in that movie? Kinda. I've never seen it. You're missing out. I suppose I should credit this to the... University of California, Santa Barbara. And I feel like California is not really the place that you would want to bring back a mammoth. Yeah, North America has got plenty of relatively recently extinct megafauna that it could bring back. Plenty of living as well. Oh yeah, absolutely. If they wanted to actually get the bison back properly in the way they were before European colonisation, that'd be cool. But you'd... I mean, you might have some pileups on a freeway. I meant Texans. What some are proposing to do with the de-extinction will be like manufacturing a part of the engine of a Model T and trying to shove it into a Tesla, says lead author Macaulay. You can't just take a part and put it into a brand new system and expect it to work without considering how its ecological context has changed. 
which is fair because some places have been trying very hard to balance the advances of human civilization with preservation of wildlife and ecology. And if you've got, for example, rare zancarellas running up and down the trees and wherever it is you can't find them, then dropping a big mammoth on them might cause some problems. Might cause some problems with finding any more zancarellas. I mean, the species they're really considering in this are recently extinct. The reunion giant tortoise and Australia's letter stick nest rat. The Christmas Island Pipistrelle and the Reunion Giant Tortoise both also meet their second recommendation, which is animals whose ecological niche can't be filled any other way. So the Pipistrelle, once upon a time, was the only insect-eating bat in its habitat. So presumably Christmas Island is absolutely overrun with moths. The Reunion Giant Tortoise was very important for seed dispersal across its island. There's a lovely quote here at the end of... Can we thoughtfully use this tool to do real conservation? Macaulay asked. Answering that question is going to require a lot of perspectives, not only from the geneticists who are leading this process, but also from other types of scientists. Ecologists, conservation biologists, ecosystem managers. Sounds like he's setting himself up for a nice long job. And it's very important to note that doing this research into what animals can be resurrected will also have effects on efforts to save animals that aren't yet extinct. And then rounding out our animal news section. A dog's dilemma. Do canines prefer praise or food? The answer's praise. At least now you know that when you are actually trying to lure your dog into doing something for you, like playing or doing a trick, it will listen to you. And if you give it nice positive re-encouragement, then it's going to be more likely or more receptive to getting along with people than just throwing a jumbo at it. The obvious answer for most things, obviously, is uh, biological drives. Food is a primary one, so animals that you're trying to train, the common sense approach is you feed them, they associate good behaviour with food, they continue to do the good behaviour because they want to get fed. Uh, It turns out dogs, possibly because of their relationship with humans, they've been domesticated a very long time. They're part of our families and they consider us family too. Just... Telling your dog that he's been a good boy is a stronger, is a more powerful reward in terms of modifying their behaviour than feeding them. And there's a lovely quote from Gregory Burns, who's the lead author of the paper published in Social, Cognitive and Effective Neuroscience, where he says, Dogs are individuals, and their neurological profiles fit the behavioural choices they make. Most of the dogs alternated between food and owner, but the dogs with the strongest neural response to praise chose to go to their owners 80-90% to 90% of the time. It shows the importance of social reward and praise to dogs. It might be analogous to how we humans feel when someone praises us. They had three different objects that they trained the dogs to associate with three different outcomes. This is very, very much in the vein of Pavlov training his dogs to associate a food reward with the ringing of a bell. They presented the dogs with a pink toy truck, which they were taught to associate with a food reward, a blue toy knight they were trained to associate with receiving verbal praise from their owner, and a hairbrush to serve as a control. As we previously mentioned, controls are very important in experiments. They didn't attach a reward association to that object. And then once the dogs had had those associations built, then the choice was offered again. Do you want to get food? pink truck? Do you want to receive praise? 
blue knight? Or are you just going after things that will fit in your mouth with the hairbrush? They tested how the dogs responded inside their heads to these objects by putting them in an fMRI scanner, noting the neural activation when they were presented with each of the objects. And then they gave them a very, very simple maze. It was literally a Y shape, and at one end of one of the two forks of the Y, there was a bowl of food, and at the other of the two forks, there was their owner, and they were just sent down and allowed to make their choice multiple times out of all of their experimental dogs, which, I mean, 13. 11 of them reliably chose to be told that they were a good boy or girl or other. If you do want to click through the links that we're going to attach to this, then you can go and look at the press release for yourself and find a picture of a dog. And that's all we've got time for with some of our longer form stories. But here's a few headlines that we didn't quite get around to mentioning, which you might also want to hear about, such as bartending and family life might not mix. Who'd have thought staying up late and working on sociable hours makes it difficult to feel like a real grown-up? Humans have caused climate change for 180 years. Good to know. Now it's terrifying and horrid. Golden eagles may be more abundant in undeveloped, elevated landscapes. I.e. mountains. The University of Toronto scientists solve a puzzle of converting gaseous carbon dioxide into solid burnable fuel. I mean, the answer is trees, but if you can do it artificially, well done, you guys. And finally, a nanoscale wireless communication system via plasmonic antennas. We might get around to explaining that one as soon as we come to understand it. Questions? Comments? You can send them to us at eurekanerdcast at gmail.com. That's eurekanerdcast at gmail.com. Or find us on Twitter at eurekanerdcast. But until next time, that's all from me. And all from me. So thanks, and we'll see you again next time. <laughs>